This is the History Tavern Podcast. Amos Hummingson was many things before the Civil War began. He was a saddle maker, a whaler who spent three years at sea. He was a loving husband and a father. One thing Hummingson wasn't, however, was a celebrity. Tragically, his death and the subsequent campaign to identify his body and notify his family would become one of the greatest human interest stories to emerge from the Battle of Gettysburg. In this special Battle of Gettysburg anniversary episode of History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talked to artist and author Mark Dunkelman about his book, Gettysburg's Unknown Soldier, The Life, Death, and Celebrity of Amos Hummingston. In this book, uh, it takes you from the seas of the Pacific on a whaling boat to the fields of Gettysburg. Um, so I think probably the most, um, the, the best place to start is uh, if you could tell us a little bit about Amos Hummingston's childhood. Uh, I believe he's born uh, in Western New York, uh, pretty modest circumstances. Yes, he was. We really don't know a lot about his early years. Um, he was born in Owego, Tioga County, New York in uh, 1830 and apparently apprenticed to be a, a uh, harness maker, probably during his teens. But um, after doing that for a while, he changed course. And in November of 1850, we find him in New Bedford, Massachusetts, signing a whaleman's shipping paper. And in December of that year, he sailed aboard the New Bedford whale ship Harrison on a Pacific whaling voyage that lasted for almost, uh, well, more than three years. Yeah, right. Uh, in, until April of 1854, when the ship returned to New Bedford. So that was obviously uh, his first great adventure. Um, and I really got into studying after I learned that he, he uh, made this voyage, studying the whaling industry, which is a very well-documented industry, early American industry. And fortunately for me, I live in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, New Bedford's only a half hour or so away. And uh, the resources there were just tremendous for me to... Um, outline that entire chapter of his life. And that was really great because you know, I picked up the book and uh, obviously knew it was about a, a soldier who was killed at Gettysburg, and I got such an education on the whaling industry, which was endlessly fascinating, uh, as you said. Uh, he, I was just fascinated to learn so many things. He, he really didn't make a lot of money. I think you wrote it, 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 he earned less than $5 a month at sea, uh, and of course it's a very dangerous job. But he got to see a lot of incredible things, and I think uh, fell in love with the, the Sandwich Islands, which is, I think, part of Hawaii. The Sandwich Islands was the name for Hawaii. Okay, yes. Yeah, and, and they put in in Hawaii um, a couple times a year. And uh, I've never been to Hawaii myself, but I'd love to go someday and go to Lahaina and Hilo, um, which were the ports that uh, the ship Harrison put in at uh during that lengthy voyage. he So he returns back to uh, Western New York, Portville, and he gets married. Can you tell us about his wife, Felinda, who, of course, is a major part of this story? Right, yeah. Um, well, actually, before they moved to Portville, uh, he, he got back uh, from the whaling voyage as I said, in, in April of 1854. And that July 4th, just a few months later, he married Felinda Betsy Ensworth Smith. Now, her maiden name was Ensworth, but she had already been married to a young man named Smith who died, left her a widow. And um, again, we know very little about her, her life, uh, early life. But the two of them... Um, Proceeded to have children. Uh, their first child, uh, a son, Franklin, 
was born, they were still living in Tioga County, Candor, okay. New York. And uh, Franklin was born there in April of 1855. Uh, then their daughter Alice was born in uh, March of 1857. By 1859, they had moved farther west to Cattaraugus County, New York, and the village town, town and village of Portville, where their third child, third and last child, their son Frederick, was born. So by this point, one whaling voyage was enough for Amos Humiston, as it was for many of the so-called green hands, the lowest people uh, on the in the cruise of a whale ship. Um, most of them made one whaling voyage, and that was it. And Amos was one of those. So he, again, took up harness making. And in the 1860 census, he's listed as a harness maker. And, of course, that's just on the cusp of the outbreak of the Civil War. So in the early calls for volunteers in 1861, according to family stories, he wanted to enlist, but he was reluctant to leave his family. And so it wasn't until 1862 when he finally received assurances that his family would be cared for in his absence that he enlisted. And that was in... Um, July of 1862, and he enlisted to serve for three years and was mustered in as a corporal in Company C of the 154th New York Volunteer Infantry. The 154th, which you are the historian of, uh, and you've written many books, and you uh, you write a newsletter every month that I, I'm lucky enough to receive now, in fact, received it this morning. Um can you tell us a little bit about the 154th and sort of their early experience in the war? Uh, they don't go into battle really until Chancellorsville, but, you know, they're not sort of, uh, they're in camp and, you know, they have some uh, some experiences that are not very good ones. Yeah, well, they're, they're sent to the front. They arrive in Washington in October of 1862 and are sent to, after spending several, a little more than a week, about 12 days uh, on Arlington Heights, opposite Washington, they marched to Fairfax Courthouse, where they joined the Army of the Potomac. They're assigned to the 11th Army Corps. And for seven months with the 11th Corps, they make basically inconsequential moves in Northern Virginia, changing camp, uh, from Fairfax in November and early December of 62, they made a movement out to Thoroughfare Gap in the Bull Run Mountains and back. Didn't encounter any enemy, but they got a little practice in foraging, which uh, would stand them in good stead in, later in their career. Um, so wound up back in the Fairfax area and then eventually made the movement down to Fredericksburg, area uh, and wound up in Falmouth, Falmouth, Virginia, but arrived too late to take, in the, take part in the Battle of Fredericksburg, which of course was fortunate for them. So then they went into winter camp in Falmouth and near Stafford Courthouse and spent the winter, uh, you know, in the typical log huts with covered with tent roofs. And uh, Amos got sick during that period. And as he put it in a letter to his wife, uh, his comrades treated him like a brother and, and helped him through it, he eventually recovered. So the first seven months of his and the regiment service were really pretty inactive when you get down to it, aside from these various movements. Right, right. Um, how, did the, how did the 154th get the nickname, the Hardtack Regiment? Yeah. Uh, while they were in these winter camps in the winter of 1862-63, their brigade, which was the 1st Brigade, 2nd Division, 11th Corps, and as you know, Nick, uh, there was a substantial German contingent in the 11th Army Corps, mm -hmm. and two of the regiments uh, in the 154th Brigade were wholly German, and another was partially German. And it turned out that the New Yorkers 
really loved hardtack, whereas the Germans preferred coffee. And so the members of the 154th New York began to trade coffee for hardtack. And eventually, some of the sharper ones decided to uh, cheat a little bit and dry out their used coffee grounds and trade them to the Germans for hardtack. <laughs> and of course, it didn't take the Germans very long to figure out what was going on. And so they labeled the 154th New York hardtacks. And the 154th would shout back, you know, coffee or sauerkrauts. There was a lot of ethnic prejudice uh, that unfortunately riled the uh, 11th Army Corps and the rest of the army directed that prejudice to the 11th because of its large German contingent. Uh, so there, so I'm sorry. No, no. So uh, the, uh, you know, one member of the 154th uh, wrote that uh, we can hardly get any water to drink around here unless uh, that some Dutchman hasn't washed his ass in. Right, right, and 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 you see that play out um, even on the battlefield, and uh, it, it plays out in Chancellorsville. The Eleventh Corps is placed in what everybody believes to be the uh, you know rear, with a you know safest spot, the spot that you don't need reliable soldiers, and uh, mm -hmm. and of course that's ends up being the uh, position of Stonewall Jackson's famous right flank attack. Now, Mark, before we get to that, uh, in, in, in Chancellorsville, where the 154th sort of gains its name and its stripes, but at a dear cost, if you could just talk a little bit about Amos the Man, because this is so heartbreaking as I go through the book, of course, you know, knowing what's going to happen, the letters back and forth to Felinda are just heartbreaking because he just seems like a very good family man uh and you know you, you already mentioned he got sick and there's there's some hope throughout the winter that he might get a furlough and as i'm reading i'm saying i hope he gets a furlough i hope he gets a furlough he's able to go home for a little while and he doesn't so i mean is that your sense too that he was a very good man cared a lot about his family uh oh yeah 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 absolutely and I've had the good fortune to locate and copy and transcribe more than 1,700 wartime letters written by members of the 154th New York. And of course, I've read a lot of other Civil War soldiers' letters, too, in five decades, basically, of study. <laughs> right. And um, Amos was unusual in, in this respect. A lot of Civil War, most Civil War soldiers were reticent in expressing affection and love for their families. They, they were just sort of buttoned up in that regard. Amos was different. His letters are full of, full of expressions of affection for his wife and the children. And it's just, it, it's almost as if he was fated for what happened. Um, he was a very devoted father, kissed the children for me, yes. hugged the children over and over in his letters. And to his wife, you know, when I get home, I'm going to, I'm going to be closer to you than bark on a tree. That was one of my you favorites. Know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he just, uh, I don't have all these quotes right at, at hand sure, No. and I don't have them memorized, but, but <laughs> they, they just were astonishing. And when I first saw Amos's letters, and it, there's a whole story of how I was able to track them down and, and find them, but when I first saw them, I noticed a couple of things. One was this poem that he wrote to my wife, and when I read it, I said, oh my goodness, I mean, this is this is sort of quintessential Amos. Uh, You've put the children to bed, dear wife, and covered them over with care, my Frankie, Ellie, and Fred, and and they've said their evening prayer. Perhaps they've breathed the name of one who is far in southern land and wished he too were there to join their little band. I am very sad tonight, dear wife. My thoughts are dwelling on home and thee as I keep the lone night watch beneath the holly tree. 
The winds are sighing through the trees, and as they onward roam, they whisper hopes of happiness within our cottage home. And as they onward past, o'er hill and vale and bubbling stream, they wake up thoughts within my soul like music in a dream. Oh, when will this rebellion cease, this cursed war be o'er, and we our dear ones meet to part from them no more? That just absolutely struck me when I was reading, uh, and and of course the irony, uh, and it comes more from Ferlinda's part. Uh, she's she's sort of self conscious about her ability to write letters, and you know, and so 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 is Amos. Meanwhile, he's able to produce something so beautiful like this uh, while he's away at war. Um, what what sense did we get of his politics? Uh, you know, I, I think I think not a lot. He he strays away from that, at least in his letters. I think the only thing somewhat political that I at least uh, saw in the book was his mention of you know sort of uh, glad that that McClellan has been replaced by Burnside. Uh, great great quote. Uh, he's too slow for these fast times. Um, what wh- what's the what's the sense there? Well, you put your finger on it. There isn't much right, there. Right, okay. uh, there, there. There really isn't. And another thing that, to me, and I won't say this is disappointing, but it's it's a lack. No comments in Amos's letters whatsoever about slavery, African Americans, uh, the root cause of the war. Um, so we don't know his his opinion of emancipation and and, uh, and blacks. Uh, and and it, that's lacking. Yeah. But um, it was all about the family, you know, when he was mm-hmm. writing home. And mm-hmm. and as Civil War soldiers did so well, even with their poor spelling and, and lack of punctuation, they could express themselves so beautifully mm-hmm. uh, and descriptively about what was the experiences that they were undergoing. So what, um, uh, what happened on May 2nd in Chancellorsville? Uh, I think, you know, really the first time that, that Amos and the 154th encountered um, uh, combat. Yes, it was, although uh, shortly before uh, they had spearheaded the crossing of the Rappahannock River at uh, Kelly's Ford, and they came under fire during that movement when they crossed the river in, in boats before the laying of a pontoon bridge, but that was nothing compared to what happened on May 2nd, 1863. As you indicated, the 11th Corps held the far right of the Union Army. They didn't expect trouble over there. The Corps commander, Oliver Otis Howard, actually left during the afternoon after receiving warning after warning from subalterns that there was movement towards their rear and flank and signs that trouble was brewing, Howard dismissed those warnings and actually left his headquarters at Dowdle's Tavern with his strongest reserve brigade, the uh, 2nd Brigade of the 2nd Division, and went off to join Sickles' attack on what turned out to be the rear of Jackson's column moving towards the 11th Corps flank. So the 11th Corps was virtually unprepared for what happened at around 5 p.m. when Jackson unleashed his 26, roughly 26,000 men on, on this small Union Corps <clears throat> and shattered the two divisions that were to the west of the sole brigade left in the second division, Bushbeck's brigade, Colonel Adolphus Bushbeck's brigade. And so Bushbeck's brigade had time to turn its position and form a line in a rifle pit that had been constructed facing the opposite direction, but they utilized that in any case as breastworks. And there were four regiments in the brigade, the 29th New York, the 27th Pennsylvania, the 73rd Pennsylvania, and the 154th New York. And they took position with those regiments, as I named them, from the right to the left. So the 154th New York held the left of what became known as the Bushbeck Line. 
And, you know, there was resistance by other 11th Corps troops before that, particularly Carl Schurz's division around the Wilderness Church. But one by one, these lines of the 11th Corps were driven until Bushback's brigade and rallied portions of the other two divisions along to their right were all that was left between Stonewall Jackson's men and the rest of the Union Army. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Mark. Well, they stood for roughly 20 minutes, half hour tops. And the other three regiments in the brigade had were veteran regiments. They had seen combat. They had been at uh, Second Bull Run, for example. The 154th was a new regiment. And according to universal testimony by members of the 154th, uh, the 29th New York on the right broke first, followed by the 27th Pennsylvania. Then a portion of the 73rd gave way, and the uh, left half of the 73rd, together with the 154th, stood their ground until basically they were coming under enfilade fire from both flanks and were in danger of really getting surrounded before they left. And I think that this forlorn stand by the 154th was partially because they wanted to show their mettle. They wanted, this was their baptism of fire, and they wanted to do the best they could. They suffered grievously as a result. They took 590 men into the fight and lost 240. That's a 40% wow. casualty rate. Wow. And most of them were killed or wounded. And of course, they were driven from the field, so they left behind their killed and wounded. And as you know, having read my book, the Amos Humiston story almost ended at Chancellorsville. Yes. Mm -hmm. As he reported to Felinda, uh, he was hit uh, in his chest by a spent bullet. And as I put it, I believe in the book, you know, if it wasn't for this accident of velocity and trajectory. He might have been killed there at Chancellorsville, and his body, together with the rest of the 154th dead, would have been tossed by the Confederates into a common mass grave, and that would have been it for Amos Humiston. His name would not have been remembered. But as it was, he survived. He And he only survives, you know, to... I mean, it's so crazy to think that, you know, the 154th avoids heavy action until May 1863 and then finds itself on the right flank in Chancellorsville on May 2nd. And then, as we're about to get to, uh, on Coster Avenue on July 1st uh, in, in more heavy fighting. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you could, Mark, just sort of get us to at least the morning of July 1st uh, how does the 154th end up in Gettysburg? Or most of it, I think, ends up in Gettysburg. There's a detachment that's somewhere else. But if you could just sort of tell us how we get to the point of the afternoon of July 1st. Okay. But before we do that, Nick, sure, sure. let's just think about a letter that Amos wrote on May 9th, one week to the day after the bloodbath at Chancellorsville. He's writing to Felinda, telling her about this spent ball that uh, came close to killing him. And then he adds, I looked for a letter from you when I got back, but did not find one. I am in hopes to get one tonight. I got the likeness of the children, and it uh -huh. pleased me more than anything that you could have sent me. How I want That's to right. see them and their mother is more than I can tell. I hope that we may all live to see each other again if this war does not last too long. Wow. So, so in that letter, he's acknowledging receiving the likeness, in other words, a photograph of his three children. Which ends up becoming the key to this story. So thank you, Mark, for pausing me, and, and, and we will, from this point go forward, go in whatever direction you want us to, so we can make sure we get this whole story in. If you, what, was, so what was the actual, the photo was of his three children, Frank, Alice, and Fred, 
And I think right. I said that uh, from the, the oldest to the youngest. Uh, and it was an ambrotype. Is that is that the technical term for what kind of photo it was? Yeah, ambrotype, in other words, a photograph on glass, a so-called hard image, uh, a descendant of the daguerreotype, um, and a precursor really to the tintype. Um, although, you know, it's, it's interesting, Nick, in that in some of the publicity that occurred after Amos was found on the battlefield clutching this photograph of his three children, it was referred variously as a daguerreotype, a, tin, a melanotype, which is a tintype, or um, an ambrotype, most often as an ambrotype. So that's how I, I believe it to be. That's what I believe it to be. So, yeah, so Amos, you know, carries this picture with him from uh, the vicinity of Stafford Courthouse on the long march up through northern Virginia, through Maryland. Very difficult march the 154th and the rest of the Army of the Potomac, for that matter, made in what became the Gettysburg Campaign under searing heat, um, dry weather, lots of dust, lengthy marches, a very difficult march. And by June 30th, when they were mustered for pay, they were at Emmitsburg, Maryland, uh, within about a dozen miles of Gettysburg. And the next morning, as you indicated, 50 men from the 154th were detached and sent away on a reconnaissance to Sibyllisville, Maryland. One lucky bunch of 50 yeah. guys. Yeah. Uh, because the rest of the regiment and its brigade, at this point, it was commanded by Colonel Charles Coster. Uh, Colonel Bushbeck, I believe, had gone home sick, or he was, he was absent, and Coster had taken command of the brigade as the senior colonel. And they marched from Emmitsburg up to Gettysburg, July 1st, and arrived on Cemetery Hill. And the uh, two, the first and third divisions of the 11th Corps were deployed north of town on the plains, north of Gettysburg, along what today is Howard Avenue, and took part in the battle there. In the meantime, uh, Adolf von Steinworth's 2nd Division was held in reserve on East Cemetery Hill. And as the battle progressed in the afternoon, um, Carl Schurz, who was commanding the 11th Corps, Oliver Otis Howard, having taken command of the entire Union forces on the field on the death of John Reynolds, Carl Schurz kept pleading with Howard for reinforcements, and Howard refused until very late in the afternoon when the 11th Corps was the lines at Barlow's Knoll and et cetera, heading over towards Oak Hill, were finally being driven. And at around 3.30 or thereabouts, Howard finally relented and ordered Coster's brigade to rush through town to cover the retreat of the 11th Corps. So, Coster's men marched down Baltimore Street, down to the Diamond, as it was called, the town square, made a right onto York Street, a left onto Stratton Street, marched down across the railroad, across the stone bridge over Stevens Run, and to a carriage gateway that led into what was the brickyard owned by a man named John Kuhn. And along the way, for some inexplicable reason, either Coster or Carl Schurz, who accompanied Coster's brigade through the town, deployed the 73rd Pennsylvania near the railroad station, I guess as a rear guard to cover the rear guard. That left only three regiments. Um, the 134th New York, which had replaced the 29th New York in the brigade, the 29th term of service having ended. The 134th New York held the far right, the 154th New York in the center, and the 27th Pennsylvania held the left. And this line was formed along a fence line at the northern boundary of Coons Brickyard. 
And the men had scarcely taken position when two Confederate brigades crested the slope to their front and came across the plains to their right. The Confederates outnumbered Coster by more than three to one. And according to members of the 154th New York, they had time to fire about six to nine shots apiece. This is another stand. This is a stand really very similar to the stand they had made at Chancellorsville. Forlorn hope, uh, rear guard action, and the 134th New York on the right was driven from the field with very heavy losses, killed and wounded. The 154th, seeing that, attempted to go back the way they came to regain access to Stratton Street. They discovered that the 27th Pennsylvania had already been driven as well. And by the time they got to Stratton Street, the Confederates held the street, and the regiment was, as more than one of the members put it, gobbled up, and most of them were taken prisoners. A very small number of them were able to escape and and make this mad dash scramble back towards Cemetery Hill. Uh, So what happened to Amos or what you know what do we know about what happened to Amos he he I, I don't think he he wasn't killed in that initial stand I don't think right Mark because he is where he's found no well uh, luckily for me uh, a member of company C named Charles McKay wrote a, a post-war memoir in which he recalled that um, one of the officers of company C although he realized that the rest of the regiment was leaving, said, boys, let's stay right here. You know, they wanted to show they could, they could put up some more fight, but eventually they were driven as well. So we really don't know what happened, but we do know this. Amos made it about an eighth of a mile to the spot where he was found. Farther uh, up Stratton Street, or down Stratton Street, I suppose, um, towards the town and towards Cemetery Hill. And he was found in the back of a lot owned by uh, Judge Samuel Russell near the intersection of Stratton and York Street and actually quite near to where his monument now stands on the firehouse grounds uh, on North Stratton Street in Gettysburg. Uh, when was he found? I, you know, I think something that uh, that uh, <clears throat> that I certainly have to keep in mind is that it's not until July 5th, I think, that the town uh, is sort of released from Confederate control. So a lot of Union soldiers went unburied in that, in that area. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually the, the Union army took over the town on, on the fourth Lee's okay. army having retreated. And I learned actually subsequent to the publication of my book that um, the 154th went back to the area where they had fought and uh, attempt, you know, buried some of their men or, or check things out. Uh, but according to an officer, the corpses were already so bloated, bloated and distorted that they were unrecognizable. In any case, nobody discovered Amos of the regiment uh, during that brief time they were, were back uh, at the scene of their fight. But we really don't know precisely who or when Amos's corpse was found. What we do know is that when it was found, he was holding the picture of his three children upon which his last sight had gazed. And that really, (laughs) that is what this whole story revolves around. Amos dead on the battlefield, clutching this picture of his three children. Uh, and uh, I, I think this is probably the time maybe to start. Uh, who, who is Dr. Francis Bournes? I mean, he, he seems like quite a character. How does he, uh, what, what role does he now play in this story? Well, he plays a crucial role, very important role, because he comes to Gettysburg to help care for the wounded after the battle, uh, not only as a physician, but also as an agent of the United States Christian Commission. And on his way to Gettysburg, 
Well, I should, should point out that Dr. Borns is a physician from Philadelphia, but he's a native of Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, and he spends his summers there. And so that's why he happened to uh, be approaching Gettysburg from the west rather than the east. And apparently he went from Waynesboro to Chambersburg, which was a rendezvous for uh, medical officers heading to Gettysburg in the aftermath of the battle. So he's coming from Chambersburg and comes through a place called Graffenburg Springs, where the wagon that he and a couple of associates are in breaks down. And they go into a tavern there, and the tavern keeper, one Ben Shriver, happens to have... Now, Ben Shriver had uh, a daughter who was married to a fellow named Peter Beitler, and they lived in the vicinity of the brickyard in Gettysburg, and it was one of them, probably, that found the amber type, and somehow it wound up back in Graffenburg, Ben Shriver's tavern. So this is all contingencies. I mean, if this hadn't happened, if that wagon hadn't broken down, Dr. Borns wouldn't have gone in this tavern, seen this amber type photograph, heard the story, and realized that this picture was the single sad clue to the identity of this unknown soldier. So he borrowed this picture, this photo, and he took it back to Philadelphia with him. And he instigated this wave of publicity that spread the story of the unknown soldier and his three children all across the North from newspaper to newspaper. And the first stories appeared on October 19th, 1863. And pretty much exactly uh, a month later, a second story was published in the papers that the dead soldier had been identified because this wave of publicity had spread from paper to paper to paper, and one paper in particular published in Philadelphia uh, called the American Presbyterian had found its way to Portville, New York, where there was a single subscriber, probably the Reverend Isaac Ogden, who was the Presbyterian minister there, and into the hands eventually of Felinda Humiston. Now, one of the most common uh, mistakes made in relating the Humiston story is that the children's picture was published in the newspaper. But as you know, that technology didn't exist back then. They couldn't publish photographs in the newspaper. They could publish engravings made from photographs. But in the case of the uh, Humiston incident, the picture was described very minutely the approximate ages of the three children, who incidentally were four, six, and eight at the time, the fact that little Freddie was sitting in a high chair, well, they didn't know his name, the youngest boy was sitting in a high chair between his older brother and sister, and the brother and sister, the older brother and sister, were both wearing uh, outfits that appeared to be made out of the same material, probably made by their mother. And when Felinda Humiston read in the American Presbyterian this story and read about this photograph, she realized that this sounded very much like the ambrotype she had sent Amos, who, of course, she hadn't heard from since the Battle of Gettysburg. Wow. Wow. Uh, why do you think this story resonated uh, in America as much as it did. Like you said, it, it, it was published in one paper and then another, and it only took a month before it ended up in her hands. Mm. Well, this sort of gets to the matter of the so-called good death. Mm. The good death in America in this age was... The, the dying individual surrounded by his or her family. And soldiers couldn't have that good death. They were away from their families. They were separated from their families. But in Amos's case, 
in essence, he brought his family with him to his death by bringing out this photograph and, and having it in his gaze as he expired. And that that just really touched people. I mean, there were there were a number of soldiers found with photographs, other bits of personal items, but Amos is is the story that uh, garnered all the publicity, thanks to Dr. Borns, and just touched hearts. I mean, it's it's a, such a poignant story. Who is he? It was a mystery as well. Who is he? Mm -hmm. And it was a solvable mystery because of this photograph. Right, right. Yeah. So you could see it play out over the month or longer than a month. Songs are written. Uh, I mean, he literally, as is in the subtitle of your book, Amos, even before we knew his name, was a celebrity. Uh, And uh, and, uh, just it's a fascinating story that doesn't end here. Um, So... What 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 do you make of Doctor Borns? I mean, clearly this is a uh, this is a great deed in terms of trying to identify Amos, but you can't help but think that there's so, there's something else there. I mean, he's he's selling uh, copies of the photo uh, mm-hmm. to raise money, I think, mm-hmm. to raise money for the Hummiston family. But there's yes. also, there's something underlying there that I, the record just doesn't get to what else might be going on with Dr. Borns. Dr. Borns is uh, a man of mystery. <laughs> <laughs> you, I think it's safe to say. Initially, it's all of his motives appeared to be altruistic. He, he borrows the photograph knowing that it's a single sad clue to the identity of the soldier and his family. He instigates the wave of publicity. He has hundreds, if not thousands, of copies of the ambrotype reproduced in the carte de visite format to send to inquirer, inquiring loved ones, wondering whether the children might be theirs and the dead soldier might be their loved one. And after the identification and the subsequent wave of publicity that swept the country, the dead soldier has been identified. Um, He offers these photographs, as you indicated, for sale to benefit the Hummistons for the help fund the children's education. But pretty much from the start of this crusade, he's got another motive in in mind, and that is the establishment of an orphanage for soldiers' orphans. And it's it's, um, in October of 1865 that an organization called the Homestead Association was formed. And that was this purpose. It was inspired by Amos's death and devotion as a father uh, to, to um, found this orphanage in Gettysburg. And sales of the children's picture and the sheet music, as you indicated, there was a, a poetry contest held and the winning poem was put to music. There were other songs and poems and prose written about the, this incident was very well known throughout the North. So the uh, homestead in, the homestead is intended to uh, become an institution to succor the orphans of Civil War soldiers. And again, Dr. Borns was a driving force behind that effort. Uh, and ultimately, Felinda and the three kids end up at the orphanage. Felinda uh, uh, working, uh, the kids attending school there. But yes, the the controversy continues to swirl, uh, or or at least uh, bubbles up very quickly. Um, uh, this uh, this idea that there was abuse at the orphanage. Um, Rosa Carmichael, uh, uh, very interesting, who is convicted of abuse and goes back to the orphanage. So, uh, it, if you could just how did uh, how did I think it it quickly after being very, appearing to be very successful, at least in terms of um, raising money, uh, the orphanage is is shut down, I think, in the 1870s. Yeah, the orphanage uh, was funded 
largely from um, uh, Sunday schools held fundraising drives, basically, and uh, were rewarded with photographs of the Humison children and copies of the Children of the Battlefield sheet music with the children's picture on the on the cover. And um, the orphanage was was founded in Gettysburg on East Cemetery Hill, very close to the uh, grave of Sergeant Humiston, who had been reburied in the Soldiers National Cemetery. Uh, it was inaugurated in November of 1866, so a year after the war ended. And according to the family lore, Felinda was not happy at all there. And she consequently accepted a proposal of marriage from a man that she really didn't know very well, might have met him once, I believe, uh, named Asa Barnes, who was a uh, minister from Massachusetts. So she married him in October of 1869. So the family had spent three years there at this point, Philinda and the children. Now, another common mistake in tellings popular tellings of the Humiston story is that Philinda was the first matron of the York orphanage. That's not the case. She was the wardrobe mistress, but she, she, in other words, she did have a position on the staff there. So she marries and, and leaves in 1869. Um, and it wasn't until two years later that the children joined Philinda and Asa Barnes in Beckett, Massachusetts, where they were living. So that took the Humistons away from the orphanage, but it continued to, to um, operate and really to thrive for another uh, five years or thereabouts until 1876 when problems started. There were a lot of rumors going around that Rosa Carmichael, this matron that had been hired by Dr. Borns. Dr. Borns was involved with the orphanage right from the start. He was secretary of the Homestead Association, uh, very heavily involved. He, he was a driving force behind it. And he hired Rosa Carmichael, about, about whom virtually nothing is known, aside from this brief time she spent as matron of the Homestead Orphanage in Gettysburg. And stories were starting to swirl around Gettysburg about mistreatment of the orphans. And on Memorial Day, May 30, 1876, Gettysburg was shocked when Rosa Carmichael refused to allow the orphans to take part in the Memorial Day ceremony decorating the graves in the Soldiers National Cemetery. This had been their tradition for years. I mean, who better to decorate the, the graves of soldiers in the National Cemetery than the orphans of the soldiers? But Rosa Carmichael refused to let them participate in 1876. That really raised the dander of the local Grand Army of the Republic post, Skelly Post in Gettysburg. And so they started to look more closely at these rumors of abuse, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And in June, uh, just uh, a couple of weeks later, Rosa Carmichael was arrested and charged with cruelty to one particular orphan. Uh, she eventually paid a fine and court costs and returned to the homestead, but still the rumors continue to persist. <clears throat> and finally, in September of 1877, more than a year later, a suit was filed against Rosa Carmichael and Dr. Borns for mismanagement, waste of property, and violation of trust. And uh, a couple months later, another charge was added. Borns was charged with embezzlement. Turns out mm -hmm. he, was, he was taking money meant for the orphans. Mm -hmm. And Rosa Carmichael, uh, she was... All sorts of stories came out about uh, cruel punishment she had inflicted on the orphans, perhaps 
well, not perhaps, most famously that she had created a dungeon in the basement of the orphanage building where she used to shackle and chain little miscreants. And there's a picture of the shackles in your book. The shackles were bought by the uh, elegant, uh, by Gettysburg's uh, GAR post when the orphanage was broken up and its contents sold. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, um, the, the children, like you said, eventually, uh, move, uh, closer to their mother in Massachusetts and they all go on to have, um, uh, fairly successful lives, especially, um, uh, Frank becomes a very beloved doctor, uh, yes. in, in New Hampshire. And that's just a great story. Um, Alice, I think is the most interesting of all of them. She is all over the place. And just sort of making her way any way she can. Uh, can you yeah. talk about Alice a little bit? Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, Frank became Frank went to Dartmouth College and then the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, and he settled in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, raised a family there, and was the beloved town doctor. Fred became a, a salesman and lived in the Boston area. He raised a family as well. Alice never married. Alice was a nomad. Alice wandered here and there, held various jobs. At one point, she was even here in Providence, Rhode Island, at the state orphanage, of all things. Right, right. And, yeah, it's, it's an interesting story with Alice. And she eventually wound up out in California. And she lived the longest of the three children. Um, I, I took notes on these, Nick, because I'm not good with dates, <laughs> so I'm referring to them. Uh, so Frank died in, in 1912 uh, after an operation for gallstones in a Boston hospital. He was age 57. Uh, the next year, in 1913, Felinda, the mother, died of a stroke in Jaffrey. She was living with Frank's family in Jaffrey. She was 82. Wow. In 1918, Fred died of a acute heart disease in his home in West Somersville, Massachusetts. He was only 59. Alice lived the longest of the three children. She was living in Glendale, California at age 76 in December of 1933 when she was sweeping the floor in her rooming house and got a little too close to a stove, and her dress caught on fire. And she was horribly burned and died in a hospital out there. Wow. Wow. Now, now Fred, Frank, their mother, uh, wives, children, are all buried in Jaffrey. Alice is buried out in Glendale, and... A niece was living out there, a niece and namesake, mm-hmm. Alice Hummus, and one of Frank's daughters was living out there. and She became the head librarian at UCLA. And she, she had a uh, on-and-off relationship with her aunt. But I think that this is the height, 1933, this is the height of the Great Depression. I think that they just couldn't afford to ship Alice's remains back east to be buried with the rest of her family. So she's all alone out there in California. Sort of a sad ending. (laughs) There's all these sad endings. You know, there's Amos's sad ending. Then there's this this great good is born out of the tragedy, the orphanage, and it has a sad ending. And then Alice has a sad ending. It's there's lots of sad endings in the in the Humiston story. Now I had the great pleasure of uh, going on a tour with you at the CWI conference this last summer uh, in 2019. And it was interesting for a number of reasons, uh, mainly how interesting and how good a tour it was. Uh, there was also some police intervention, which was, uh, which was pretty wild. Um, and just uh, goes to show you how different a spot on the uh, you know, Gettysburg National Park, Coster Avenue is. So mm-hmm. if, you, if, you could, if you could, Mark, because you've been involved in this for a very long time, um, not just as an author of several incredible books, but also as an artist. 
and you created as unique a monument or tribute uh, as I've ever seen, I think as most people have ever seen. So can you talk about sort of the project, um, the mural on Coster Avenue and sort of the evolution of it? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, Yeah, I've been visiting Coster Avenue since my childhood. And was that your first time there, Nick? That was my first. As I wrote to you in the email, I was ashamed to admit it that, yeah, of course, I've been to Gettysburg countless times now. um, But it's just something that, you know, you go to Cemetery Hill, you go to Little Round Top, Mm -hmm. you you know, Mm -hmm. you go to the site of Pickett's Charge and... It it just wasn't something that I that that was on my mind. I will say though that I I've learned my lesson and and since have gone back and made sure that I showed my father. So that which made me feel very good. That's great. Yeah. Well, as you indicate, most of the Gettysburg battlefield uh, is contiguous. You know, the first day's fight from the north to the west of town. The second day's fight. Second and third day's fight. You know, running down uh, Cemetery Ridge down to the round tops and, you know, very easily spotted on the official map given out at the visitor center. Coster Avenue is part of the Gettysburg National Military Park, but you got to look real closely at the map to see this tiny little green strip running off of North Stratton Street in town, not very far from Gettysburg College. It's only three quarters of an acre. The town is hemmed it in. It's surrounded by a residential area and sort of a light industrial area. And to the north are houses, to the north and east and west. And to the south, immediately bordering Coster Avenue, is the Roy Coldsmith, now the Coldsmith Roofing and uh, Sheet Metal Company. And I happen to be in Gettysburg in April of 1970 on a visit to Coster Avenue. And I noticed, I saw that the Coldsmith company was extending its, its building and they were putting up an 80 foot long blank concrete block wall that was going to be 10 feet behind the monument to the 154th New York. And I just knew this was going to be a, a unsightly backdrop to the regiment's monument to Coster Avenue. But then I realized I could put my artistic training to use. I, I went to Rhode Island School of Design and I have a BFA in illustration from that school. And, um, you know, making art, Civil War history, and playing music had been my three lifelong yeah. passions. And so this was, in this, it occurred to me I can make this wall disappear and bring back the scene that occurred on this very site by means of a mural. And so I started to do some drawings. I took photos. I sketched. And uh, I got permission from Coldsmith Company to put a painting on the back of their wall. And I also contacted some people to uh, help me with this, uh, advisors. Bill Frazzanito being one of Civil War photography fame. And Kathy George Harrison, who was a historian at the military park at that time. And a gentleman named Colonel J. Met Sheeds, who lived a little down Stratton Street a little bit and used to play baseball at Coster Avenue when he was a kid. Colonel Matt Sheeds was is a legend, was a legend, is a legend in Gettysburg. Um, he's he's long since go, uh, passed away, but uh, he was a um, high school history teacher there for many years, inspired a lot of students, and he also was a uh, a guide at the battlefield. Who, when John Fitzgerald Kennedy visited mm-hmm. Gettysburg, it was Colonel Sheeds that gave him a tour of the battlefield. So these people, I showed my sketches, and they would critique them, and I'd do more sketches. And eventually, I came up with a one-inch to one-foot scale pencil sketch that I was satisfied with, my critics were satisfied with, 
And then I had the good fortune to meet an artist here in Rhode Island named Johann Bierman, who had done mural work, painted billboards. He was used to working large. I was used to working small, and I knew I was going to need help doing the final mural. As I said, the wall was 80 feet long and tapered because of the uh, topography of the ground from uh, roughly 12 feet down to about 10 and a half feet. So I asked Johan if he'd be interested in uh, collaborating with me on this project, and he agreed. And so uh, we painted the mural. And we we painted it in a method, if you will, pretty similar to the way the cyclorama artists painted the great cycloramas, you know, one of which is in, on display in Gettysburg at the Visitor oh, Center. Right which is we took my pencil sketch and we made uh, transparencies of it and then we blew we projected them with an overhead projector onto the panels that we had built we decided to paint the mural on on detachable panels rather than paint it right onto the concrete block wall with all of its texture uh, and also that meant we could paint it here in providence and not have to spend a lot of money you know putting ourselves up down in Gettysburg right. and relying on the weather, etc. So, yeah, we had 20 um, panels uh, and we painted the mural. It's this still kind of boggles my mind. We painted the final thing in five weeks' time. Wow. Uh, a lot of it was painted with one-inch brushes because of the amount of detail wow. in it. We put it on a truck and took it down to Gettysburg. And it was installed in May of... 1988 and dedicated on July 1st, which was the 125th anniversary of the battle. And oh, it's wow. been up very, ever since in three variations. Uh, twice uh, it weathered to such an extent that uh, Johan and I had to go down in 2001, right after 9-11, and, and uh, scrape off the old marine spar varnish that had been alligatoring off of it and we repainted every square inch of it and then years later it was we were facing the same prospect and i decided to try to find some alternative way of reproducing this thing on a on a substance that would last longer than just oil paint on mdo board as the original mural was constructed and um, a chance comment by a, a friend of my wife's asked me, have you thought about doing it on glass, reproducing it on glass? And so I looked into that, and that's eventually what happened. Um, the mural is now reproduced on glass, and it should last for a very, very, very long time, which I'm really pleased about. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful, uh, a unique tribute and in a, in a very unique battlefield location uh like you said that is hemmed in by the city of gettysburg uh and um unfortunately has some residents that uh when when we visited with our tour uh didn't appreciate the large coach bus bus that we were on and there was a brief police intervention but the the tour went on anyway um but mark i want to thank you so much for telling us uh the story of amos uh it's a very um it's a very good book uh like i said early on you know you go from uh whaling uh you know in the pacific uh to the fields of gettysburg um you know to you end up you know in the west coast with alice so uh, the book's got a little bit of everything and it's a really good n narrative and a, and a really important story so uh, once again, I want to thank Mark Dunkelman. The book is Gettysburg, Gettysburg's Unknown Soldier, The Life, Death, and Celebrity of Amos Humming, Hummingston, uh, and it is available in paperback. Mark, thank you. Thank you so much. Nick, I appreciate it, and I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for listening to the History Tavern Podcast, and thank you to Mark Dunkelman. You can follow this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, and Facebook.